Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of Conversations That Don't Suck. We have a really good one today. So Jason Diggs is with me today. And Jason is someone who I got connected with not too uh, not too different from how I get connected to a lot of people, which is just through Facebook, finding out what their work is, and then someone reaches out to someone else, we make a connection, and we decide that both people are awesome, and uh, it's pretty pretty sweet life, I gotta say. So Jason, Jason and I, I don't know how we even got connected via Facebook, but we have just a ton of mutual friends in the realm of authentic relating and uh, folks who work in similar space as both he and I, and who do uh, the relational practices. Uh, that both he and I do and facilitate. And so I think maybe Jason had reached out to me first and I guested on his podcast um, maybe a month ago. So you can check out his podcast as well, which is called This Authentic Life. And yeah, Jason and I had a great conversation and we really connected on the way that we see the world. And And Jason is a really awesome human being and has done some really inspiring work with his company called... Authentic Relating Training International. And he, uh, through that company, they create courses that empower people to be more alive and awake and aware in their relationships to to themselves and to other people, to the whole world. And yeah, they do really great stuff. And so many people have been impacted by, by that company's work. And uh, yeah, I'm really grateful to know Jason. And one thing that I really love about this conversation is that Jason... Being a leader in a space like that is so interesting because it is an authentic space. And of course, Jason is, though I I haven't met Jason in person yet and I haven't seen him in action as a facilitator, I can imagine he functions the same way that I see a lot of other facilitators in the space function, which is that there is, of course, a high, high level of authenticity happening. And yet there's so much that we don't get to learn about the facilitators. There's so much we don't know about someone's background. And um, it was really interesting to hear about where Jason came from um, familiarly and um, yeah, what things have influenced him to fall into this type of work and what challenges he still faces um, both as an individual and in this work at large, what he still sees as as gaps or things that need to be uh, cautioned. So yeah, this is a really great episode and I hope you enjoy it. And I'm going to plug uh, very randomly, I haven't said this in a long time, and I'm hesitant to say it because I'm like, God, I don't know that anyone really listens to this part, but I'm gonna say it. If you feel inspired to leave a rating or review on iTunes, on Apple Podcasts, on this podcast, that helps other people find it, and uh, that would make me really happy for other people to find out ways that they can have more connection and joy in their lives through connection. So I'll leave that there, and I hope you enjoy this episode with Jason. We live in a world that is starved for more authentic connection. Better conversations are our first step in getting there. Welcome to Conversations That Don't Suck. I'm your host, Kyla Sokol Ward, and I'm here to engage you in truth-telling discussions about the super deep, always beautiful, sometimes ugly, and wholly honest parts of being a human. Real connection and empathic communication can feel easy and should be a part of our everyday lives. Most of our conversations suck. These ones don't. Hi, Jason. Thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. Hi, Kyla. How are you today? What is, uh, what's is what been the theme of your day so far? Sure. The theme of my day. Oh, nice question. <laughs> uh, it's been creativity, I think. 
So I've been writing, but I also have my guitar next to me. Mm-hmm. And so I've been picking up my guitar and like listening to um, a musician named Nako Bear on YouTube and like trying yes. to learn some songs. And then I put down the guitar and then I write. And, and I was boxing with one of my friends about like colors and planting gardens. And, and, and I am, uh, it's early April here in Colorado. And in the spring in Colorado, we tend to get these really big snowstorms, like in between it being nice and beautiful sometimes. <laughs> uh, so there's so much snow outside my window and I'm like watching the wind blow the trees and like blow the snow out of the... So yeah, there's something um, that's really creative and nourishing about uh, my morning. Oh, that's beautiful. I'm like feeling some jealousy that nature is like speaking speaking through you right now almost in san francisco it's just like same weather every single day and i i really miss that about being pretty much anywhere else on the earth that like there's such beauty in that so that's awesome yeah colorado specifically is known for its unpredictability (laughs) amazing well i would love for you to dive in and tell us who you are and what you're about and uh and we can flow from there sure uh so i'm a teacher facilitator I developed a two-day course called The Art of Being Human. And The Art of Being Human is like the the basic emotional education, like literally how to be a human being, how to have emotions, how to um, follow our intuition, uh, how to communicate in a way that gets our connection needs met, um, how to understand our nervous system uh, in a really practical way so that we can Uh, be as emotionally intelligent and aware as we can in our relationships. And this uh, was done with my co-founder, Raul Castano, and we took this course all over the world in the last three years. And so I have a background in like philosophy and psychology, and I'm also an artist. I was a video producer for many years. Uh, But the most recent thing um, that has been my passion is to really spread Uh, these practices of authentic relating as far and wide as possible. So I've taught on four different continents in the last couple of years and trained facilitators in Bali and Europe. And, and um, uh, currently all of our courses are on hold because of the the world situation, Uh, Mm -hmm. but we brought that online. And uh, so it's, it's really been an amazing journey of um, like, I, I left my, uh, safe home of Boulder, Colorado behind for about two years and packed everything into a storage unit. And I like moved to Bali and I moved to Amsterdam and I was just all over. And um, it was so exciting and adventurous. And uh, I also got a little bit burned out uh, living my mission in the world. So that's, yeah, that's a snapshot of of my recent uh, endeavors. Ooh, the the burnout of living your, how did you phrase it just now? Living my mission in the living world. Living your mission. Ooh, can you say more about that? That really caught my attention. Sure. You know, I think our culture is so driven, right? Uh, Western culture and American culture specifically. Mm-hmm. Um, I have this little pet theory about why. Do you want to hear that? Oh, yes, please <laughs> enlighten us. <laughs> so there was this Thing that happened in the 1800s called Manifest Destiny, where the government literally incentivized Americans to settle the western part of the country. And 
part of Manifest Destiny was they would have races and land grabs. Like they would start out on a line with like, like horses and carriages and they would just go into like, like, all right, we're going to settle Oklahoma. And they would just go into the land and people would be able to grab land, like grab a flag and claim land. And so between this and the gold rush, um, I think this embedded something inside of our consciousness that we have to go out and get it. Mm. And, and this rugged individualism aspect of American culture, um, you know, uh, came into that as well. But I just noticed myself, like even someone who's, um, you know, into conscious communication and conscious practices and, um, you know, self-care and, and I have a sense of um, work-life balance and these concepts, even me, I am so driven. And as I've been contemplating that nature, um, I realized that some of it is cultural. It's like, it's literally not me. Yeah. It's the American in me. Mm. And um, so we won't get too philosophical with this. <laughs> like, <laughs> back to the back to the question. Um, so we're in a very particular time, um, really in all of humanity, um, especially in America, as the coronavirus epidemic um, is really still ramping up and still moving towards a, a peak. You know, most Americans are staying home if at all possible right? And we're in this phase of what I would call the great pause of slowing down, mm. not getting into the car. Um, like I've been taking these walks around my neighborhood and like finding these little creeks in between the suburban houses here in Boulder um, to find all of the places I can go in walking distance without getting into my car. And I think this is really therapeutic and necessary mm -hmm. for us to undo some of this conditioning. Like we have to go out and get it. You know, it's great to be able to make things happen in the world, right? It's great to have a go-getter attitude, um, but it's not good when that undermines our emotions and our bodies are going at a different pace. Mm -hmm. and, our, and our minds and our career ambitions, right? So there has to be some reconciliation. Hmm. Yeah, and what do you, I'm curious, like what your experience with all of this, with, with this great pause, what's been your, uh, your any internal shifts that you can point to so far? Uh, honestly, it was, it's been really hard for me because mm -hmm. I'm someone who's so identified with doing things and making things happen. And when I slow down and do nothing for more than 45 minutes, I get anxious. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know if you can relate to this. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's interesting what you're saying that like some of the, um, the rugged individualism and the, the go-getter mindset and being so driven that like, you're not even sure how much of that is yours. And I think about this all the time of just like, why am I so concerned about, about like creating something and like doing something important in the world? And it, not that it's inherently bad at all, but 
I, I think about it a lot in terms of like, even where I grew up, like I grew up in like this random suburb in Maryland and, and there's like this judgment of people who have remained in Maryland and just decided to like get married and have kids. When I decided to like, no, I'm going to go to college outside of Maryland. I'm going to move to some fancy ass place in California. And like, and it's, there's just this sense of importance and it's like, it's all bullshit. It's all just like made up. And yeah, I think about this a lot, a lot, a lot. So I, I'm glad that you uh, surfaced that. I think it's a paradox because um, like it's all bullshit and also our identity is wrapped up in it. Totally. So it's kind of like who we are. And yet um, if we inquire into it deep enough, it's not who we are. Our essence is actually uh, much more natural, much more in tune with the the paces and rhythms of um, you know the seasons and 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 that's why authentic relating as a practice um, I I honestly think the very first tool and skill and one of the most important is slow down <laughs> is not that slow is even better than fast it's that do you have slow on the menu do you have it as an option mm. or are you compulsively going fast right? Because our emotional realities, um, I, I think, just move at a much slower wavelength than our, our, our brains. Mm. This is a beautiful segue into, into more of AR speak. I'm curious, like, what your, um, yeah, what your journey with it has been. And I'm always really curious with people who are deeply involved in authentic relating, like, what their background is in terms of the family they grew up with and what drew them to this type of practice. And I find that a lot of people in authentic relating communities can sometimes be kind of the black sheep of their family in terms of the ways in which they want to communicate. And maybe their family is like not into this type of thing. Um, yeah, and I'm curious what your experience is there. Mm. Well, I grew up in a big family, um, Protestant, re uh, religious. My uncle was a pastor. I had five brothers. Um, and so the, the household was like very lively and chaotic with eight of us living in the same house. Mm. <laughs> and, um, and we were also very tribal, like our wider community of uh, religious um, kind of strict uh, evangelical, evangelical Protestant was like, it's our tribe, like our tribe is what's important um, in our the truth and and so I I think I grew up with a um, a mindset that was very communal in the sense of like what's good for all of us like all eight of us as a family as an immediate family um, like I was so merged with my family growing up it was so much like us not necessarily against the world but it was like us and the world and and same thing with my church, you know, a couple hundred people, you know, led by my uncle. Uh, it was like our church and then the world's different than us. And so I, I think I was really fused with group. And, and this came back years later as I really took on the mission as a community builder in the world, building community around authentic relating, around these practices. Um, and I've had to really learn uh, about 
self-care. I've learned had to learn how to like put myself first some places sometimes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and so that's my own journey. And I think what's cool about authentic relating is we get to notice what our tendencies are, what our patterns are, mm-hmm. um, what we're handed from our culture, what we're handed from our family. And then we get to develop the other side of the polarity, the other capacities that are maybe very underdeveloped and then become a more well-rounded human uh, as a result. So authentic relating is really great for, for looking at these patterns. Um, so that's the first half of the story. And then I'll talk about how I got into authentic relating, but maybe I'll pause. Oh, that's great. That is so fascinating. I It's funny also just hearing about people's backgrounds and I never would have guessed that's where you came from at all, at all, at all. Um, it's so, so interesting. And also having this kind of tribal mindset and sort of what I'm hearing is it didn't, it doesn't sound like it was necessarily an unhealthy one. Um, I think there are a lot of ways that people do grow up with like kind of these really intense nuclear unhealthy tribal mindsets in their family. Um, a lot of times because of religion. Um, that do, I'm not hearing that though, based on what you're saying. Does that feel true to you? I think I've transmuted that. Um, I think there was really unhealthy aspects of, Mm. uh, I think evangelical Christian is a particular mindset um, that really sets up um, us against the world, Mm -hmm. you know, with any, um, if if you have a really strong in-group self-defined, like, oh, you are one of us if you believe X, Y, and Z, and you're not one of us if you believe A, Z, A B, and C. I, I think that's inherently um, destructive. Mm-hmm. Uh, in fact, it, it's about the only thing I would, in the world I would call evil um, mm. is, what I, is the word dogma, uh, essentially. Um, so I, I do believe it was uh, very harmful in certain ways. Um, but, you know, I because as a young person, um, in my twenties, I was so into philosophy. I was so into psychology. I was so into, you know, Eastern religion and meditation and, and, um, and also contemplative forms of Christianity. So I, you know, I had one teacher, um, in contemplative Christianity that was, um, really inspiring to me. His name was Father Thomas Keating. Um, and he had been a Benedictine monk his whole life and um, created uh, a whole movement in the Catholic Church um, called Centering Prayer. Uh, and so I studied with him. And, and so I went through the process of really gleaning um, the gems from my Christian upbringing. Uh, and, uh, you know, I, I was always, um, like, very inspired by the person of Jesus and the message of Christianity um, mm-hmm. at its core. And so... I think what you were hearing in the first version of the story was um, the 20 years of work I did to yeah. <laughs> transmute some of the, the more challenging aspects and really um, retain the beauty of it. Mm, amazing. And maybe, so maybe in answering what I'm about to ask you, this will be like the second half of like of everything you just described, but I'm curious when we're talking about tribes and there's, you know, that word even is like problematic, but um, when we're talking about building communities, essentially, I'm curious how you've done that without um, how you've done that, like in authentic relating communities and how you've built those communities wherever you've gone. 
without creating this dogma, without creating these mindsets, because I do think that happens even in the most well-intentioned communities like that. It can be really easy for it to become um, kind of exclusive in some ways. And I'm curious if that's ever been an experience you've had or in, and what you've done to work with it. Yeah, very much. It's what drives me um, uh, to create community the way that I do it. Uh, and I think you're right. It, as soon as we self-identify as a group, like, oh, we're, um, you know, we believe this thing or these are our values, uh, there can be the tendency, and it's almost built into our nervous systems, which is the whole, the whole study of diversity and bias and, and how it's unconscious and automatic and all of that stuff. Like, I'm not an expert in that, but I, I have studied it a little bit. Um, it's, it's hardwired into us. We, mm. uh, you know, we, we tend to mistrust races and skin colors that are different than our own. And we tend to have more trust automatically in skin colors that are more similar to ours. Mm. And, and this is a, this is a fundamental thing that we need to grapple with as humanity. Um, I believe um, is this question around diversity and race is just one thing, you know, that's the case with, you know, gender and sexual orientation and, and, you know, every other attribute that we have, but to answer your question, um, and by the way, I really am enjoying getting to share all of this with you. Thank you so much. Yes, <laughs> of course. Yeah. Um, for me, authentic relating is a way to get our connection needs met without creating dogma. Right. Mm. It, that is the core of it. And, but how do we do that? Well, it's a secular practice. It is not religious. You do not need to believe anything in particular. Um, and, and there's one specific, I'll go over, um, you know, one aspect of, of what we have developed with our international and uh, the Art of Being Human course that I mentioned, uh, which is called the five practices of authentic relating. Um, you know, welcome everything, assume nothing reveal your experience, own your experience, honor self and other. These are the five practices, right? And they're very intentionally called practices and not principles. Mm. As soon as we have, um, you know, a bar for people in our community to live up to in order to be um, well-liked and accepted in that community, we're already setting up these dynamics or in groups and out groups and dogma that can be destructive. Mm -hmm. And so by calling them practices, it's like, we're all practicing the best we can. And we all, we all fall short in these um, five practices because they're very aspirational, like welcome everything. Holy shit. Really? Like, welcome. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, the primary way that I have attempted to make community is to, um, to really have central to it is like a diversity of values and a diversity of perspectives is what makes healthy community. So difference is welcome here. Challenging leadership is health is welcome here and healthy. Um, you're having a different experience than the group. Please speak up. Like that's the kind of thing that we do in our courses. Um, to hopefully mitigate some of these challenges. Oh, wow, that's all so good. Yeah, I love that you uh, are intentional using that phrase practices. And it's, it also, I think 
erases some of those um, dynamics that can exist in groups in terms of like hierarchies and things like that. When we say like, we're all practicing this, none of us are ever going to stop practicing. We haven't, no one's achieving anything. Um, there's nowhere to get to. Um, we're all just here to practice together. And yeah, it's interesting going back to like what you said sort of at the beginning of of that statement about, yeah, people creating <laughs> like kind of in and out um, dynamics just based on even like something like a set of principles of like, oh, this is something I live up to and other people who don't do that are not a part of my group. Um, I've definitely noticed myself doing stuff like that when it comes to, yeah, even something like AR practices and um, different communication sort of ground rules that I have in my own life and noticing that like when other people don't practice vulnerability or don't use I statements when they're having an argument or something like that, like I can create this kind of um, self-importance around like the way that I communicate, like I'm doing it better, which some might argue is objectively true, but it's also like it is, it's this exclusive like tribal mindset that is really dangerous about like other people are not as good as me. And that's, that's dangerous. And um, kind of having this safety almost and going back to authentic relating communities where I feel like everyone can be trusted, which is also dangerous because then it's assuming that like everyone is perfect basically. And not, and that like, we're not all going to constantly mess up, which we will. Um, yeah. So yeah, I appreciate you bringing all that up. Yeah. It's, um, it's something that, as I mentioned before, is kind of hardwired into us. Like we're so tribal um, and in a way we can't help do it, but noticing when we do it is actually important. And yeah, we do this in authentic relating all the time, right? Vulnerability is a big part of authentic relating. And then if someone is being, um, you know, defensive or doesn't have that capacity for vulnerability, like all of a sudden we don't want to hang out with them or they don't, they're not as much part of the group and, and people, you know, get social points by being vulnerable and sometimes I like to kind of undermine this whole thing by, by, um, by sharing in, in the courses that I lead, like, this is not the vulnerability Olympics. Yeah. <laughs> right. It's like authentic vulnerability, uh, things like grief and sadness and, um, you know, sharing your pain with others. Uh, it's a way to connect. It's a, it's an aspect of vulnerability. It's really good. Um, but it's not the whole thing. I mean, even showing up in the room and saying, Hey, I need connection or, you know, I can't do this alone. Like that's, that's vulnerability. Right. Mm -hmm. So, and we're all practicing at the, at whatever level, um, you know, so the people who are newer to the practice of, of course, they're not going to be, uh, you know, have an easier, uh, easy time asking for help or, or expressing vulnerability in, in front of a group. It's effing scary, you know? Yeah. Uh, but the more we can create a culture where everyone gets to start where they are uh, and you don't have to learn a bunch of jargon and, and authentic relating speak to be a part of the group, you know, right away. Um, the more I think we do create an inclusive culture. Mm, yeah. Yeah. And there is something really like, quite intimidating about being in a room full of people who are comfortable being vulnerable for for a lot of people that can be really freeing and really um help them sink into that really easily and for someone else for like reasons unbeknownst to us it could be like so intimidating and so frightening and um yeah i think there's a lot of like care that needs to be taken by 
especially by the people who like are more experienced with it and making sure that it's a really it's it's an art for sure of helping people to feel comfortable in those settings in really unique ways. Yeah, exactly. Mm, beautiful. Um, can you tell us about your book, please? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so I'm within the next uh, um, couple weeks or month, I'm going to release uh, a book I'm calling Conflict Equals Energy. And it is a full tool set and skill set um, of authentic relating practices and uh, practical ways you can apply it to your life. Um, there's at least 40 different tools in the book, as well as the whole philosophy behind the different practices. And, um, you know, there's going to be games and, you know, authentic relating games is a really big aspect of this community. Uh, and I call it games to grow emotional intelligence, uh, ways that we can literally increase our social awareness, increase our self-awareness by playing a 30-minute exercise with a group of people, right? And so having these kind of um, actionable, practical uh, ways, we as a culture can, can really uh, cultivate emotional intelligence. And so I, I think of authentic relating as um, one of the most advanced applications in the world for developing emotional intelligence. Uh, you know, it's been around for uh, over 15 years. There's been uh, at least 100 different teachers involved in the creation of authentic relating. So it's kind of like this open source decentralized movement. And so the book is really uh, an intent, attempt to systematize and collate as much of the knowledge as possible into one place. Mm, I love that. I love that. Yeah, I think that that's one of like the main confusions that I um, that I encounter when I'm describing what authentic relating is to people. They're like, who invented it? I'm like, well, a lot of people. And um, mm-hmm. like, there's kind of these like main group of people who are doing it, but also like there's so many main groups of people doing it like all over the world. So it's, it's hard to say. Um, so yeah, it's beautiful that it's all getting coalesced into one place. Mm-hmm. Um, amazing. Yeah. Can I answer the other half of the question that you asked a while ago? Oh, yes, please. Thanks for reminding me. <laughs> I imagine this will be helpful for some people um, uh, because it, it goes into the history of authentic relating. So I, um, I encountered this practice eight years ago uh, when it first came to Boulder, Colorado. And, you know, in San Francisco, it was it was really a practice about following aliveness. Like that was the core of it. It was like, how can we be alive human beings? And they used to have this thing called the game. And the game was, was um, do what you want to do. Don't do what you want to do. Um, if you make a mess, clean it up. And like all these different interesting rules, but it was designed to challenge social conventions and help people break out of um, social norms that were holding them back. And, and, the practice has become more refined and more diverse over the last eight years since I've been a part of it um, because, you know, it was basically a group of 10 people in, in San Francisco who were, who were teaching this, you know, over the first eight years. And then when it came to Boulder, Colorado, uh, it mixed with a tribe that I was a part of, uh, the Ken Wilber Integral Theory Tribe. And uh, people came from all over the world you know, we had people move from Australia to Boulder, Colorado for six months to study this practice. And we had a, a six month leadership course 
um, called T3 Train the Trainer. And I was one of the early, um, I was, you know, for the first couple of years, I was volunteering my time and going to two or three weekends a month um, as an assistant course leader and kind of learning from the feet of masters, so to speak. Uh, and I was a video producer at that time and as well. So I was like documenting certain parts of it. And then I um, branched out and I went to Austin, Texas and studied with Sarah Ness. And I went to Amsterdam and studied with the Circling Europe guys. Um, and so for the first you know, three years, I was an intense student of this practice. Like I just immersed myself in it as much as possible. Um, and then I began to facilitate more and more uh, and kind of left behind my career as a video producer. And, and, um, and so the form of authentic relating that me and my co-founder have developed over the last three years, um, it's really authentic relating as an awareness practice, authentic relating as an emotional intelligence um, cultivator grower, you know, as a, as a full curriculum. Whereas authentic relating games is really, it's designed to create community. It's, you know, you know also has that awareness, like self-awareness building practice as well. But authentic relating games has just exploded in the last five years and no one can even track how fast it's growing. Like mm -hmm. I'll, I'll, I'll be on some random zoom call and I'll meet a leader who's working in, you know, a new city. I didn't even know there was an authentic relating community in that city. Um, and when I started my podcast uh, three years ago and, uh, you know, started re interviewing authentic relating leaders and, and um, circlers all, all over, you know, I, even I have to re-record this because it says authentic relating has spread to 30 city, more than 30 cities around the world. I think it's a hundred cities. Wow. You know, I, I, it's growing so fast in so many places. Like we did our first course in Singapore two months ago. Wow. You know, our, we did our first course in Thailand two months ago. Uh, we've done, and a part of that was like two years ago, I moved to Bali. And every time we did a course in Bali, you know, there was Australians, Europeans, and Americans in the course mm. uh, who, you know, then went back to their hometowns. And so it's, it's just spreading so far and so fast. Oh, wow. That's incredible. That's so beautiful. I'm curious, do you attribute anything to it spreading so much specifically over the past five years? Yeah, I think it's a, um, a confluence of several things. Uh, the one that I've been thinking about the most is I think it's a, it's an, ad an adaptation of humanity in response to technology. Mm -hmm. So we're, 12 years into this experiment of smartphones, like, you know, technology has been a huge part of our lives for the last 50 years, but only since 12 years ago, do we have a device that connects us to, to the internet um, and connects us to so many people in so many ways. Um, and, you know, let alone things like Facebook and Instagram that are really designed to capture our attention you um, know, almost get us hooked on them. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, uh, like our smartphones, I think the best metaphor is it's, it's a slot machine. It's a slot machine for dopamine. Yeah. And um, so the ways that we're connecting or feeling connected through our smartphones, whether that's, you know, 
there's a, obviously dozens of them, TikTok and, and uh, Snapchat and <laughs> Facebook and Instagram and blah, you know, no one could even list how many ways we could actually connect. And, and every time we get a little buzz on our phone, it's, you know, some person that's liked or commented or responded to one of our messages. And so we have this almost as a primary connection portal, right? So I know this is a long answer to your question. Um, no, this but, is great. But I think it's important. So as humanity gets more and more influenced by technology, I think fundamental ways of, like if I just imagine myself alive 150 years ago, right? Before the telegraph was invented, the telegraph <laughs> is this thing that they used to send Morse code. Yeah. Right? Before the telephone, before the telegraph, the only way I could connect was to write a letter to someone or show up at their house. Mm-hmm. And if I wanted to, let's say, do something fundamental to human existence, like find a mate and date, right? <laughs> I had to call on someone. Which, yeah. Which meant go to their house and probably talk to their parents mm-hmm. and ask their parents if I can bring them to the social dance. In the social dance, there would be all these single people dancing with each other like moving three-dimensionally in space to live music because recorded music doesn't <laughs> <really> exist, right? <laughs> so when we start to like imagine what life was like only 150 years ago, there's all these aspects to embodied communication that were natural because there was no other choice. Mm-hmm. And so I think authentic relating is inherently... Uh, an adaptation to be able to make sure this part of ours doesn't atrophy too much, that we have a way to exercise it. Um, So that's, that's one reason why I think it's spread so far and so fast. I think the work itself um, points to inherently human ways of being, and it's so potent. You know, people who are not even that, skilled of facilitators and leaders can take the games and lead people through them and they'll have potent experiences. I love that you're bringing that up about just how communication has changed on the most practical level in such a short period of time, like such a short period of time. And I I think about this all the time with like Generation Z, which for those who don't know, is like the current generation being born, like post, I think like since 1998 is roughly the year that like Generation Z began. And um and and there's so many statistics about like their communication styles that are like now starting to emerge and a lot of them saying that like that they hate talking on the phone and they will like do anything to avoid being to avoid talking to their friends on the phone um they'd rather you know text or communicate through social media or something and it makes a lot of sense to me given the way that they've grown up with technology being like really literally at their fingertips since they could speak and and i think about myself as a kid simp- like just Born, like I was born in 92. I'm not that much older than them, but like I would talk on the phone with my friends all the time. I would call their house. I would talk to their parents. I would ask if I could speak to them. I would show up at their door and say, Hey, can Caitlin play? Like, and it was, it's so different. It's changed so much, like so quickly. And I think one thing that I hear a lot of times in authentic relating communities, when people are being introduced to, to these games is like, 
there's kind of a like a remembering that happens for people of like oh I forgot this is like how we could be together and um even if there's someone who like didn't grow up with this type of communication and this type of openness and vulnerability with one another it's there is something like in our beings that's like oh yeah we could be this way together and like this is this actually feels a lot more natural even if it's a little scary it feels a lot more natural than like the guardedness and the falsification of our identities that we're usually wearing all the time mm-hmm. yeah mm-hmm. I still agree. yeah beautiful um well i want to be mindful of our time here and want to do two things before we close one i would love to do a lightning round of some deep dive questions with you but before that i would love to uh for you to tell all the people where they can find out more about you and your work authenticrelating.co so the name of my company is art international authentic relating training and we do courses all over the world we have a um, online course as well and yeah the website is authenticrelating.co Awesome. Great. Okay. So for your questions and most of these, (laughs) most of these are taken probably from an authentic relating sentence stems Bible somewhere. So Mm -hmm. (laughs) we'll just name that. I, I doubt I came up with most of these on my own, maybe one of them anyways. Okay. Um, what is something that most people wrongly assume about you? Hmm. (sighs) Ah, they, People wrongly assume that I'm calm Hmm. because I think it's calming to be around me and I'm a good listener and I present like in a very um, collected, um, unflappable kind of way. Um, And I think this is actually just a more an adaptation to my anxiety. And yeah, to reveal one layer deeper, um, my internal state from day to day could literally go from like completely peaceful, like blissed out, so content, like anything could happen. Um, I'm I'm very good at um, adapting to change and accepting circumstances as they are, uh, which I think is just a core piece of my personality to completely panicked uh, like levels of anxiety that are so strong that they could be called panic attacks. And, you know, that's, that part is, is rare, but it does happen. And so most of the time I'm somewhere in the middle where like managing my own anxiety. Mm. Mm. Yeah. I definitely wrongly assumed about you. Assume that about you for sure. <laughs> Awesome. Okay. Um, what is something that you would like to be more acknowledged for in your life? Hmm. Ooh, that question's kind of sweet. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Yeah, my multifaceted nature. My, my um, like, I think I w- wrote one version of my bio a while ago that's like, Jason Diggs is a renaissance man. <laughs> <laughs> like, I just, what, one thing I love about myself is that I have done all of these different things in my life. Like I have, you know, created films and have done music projects and done recording projects and um, writing projects and teaching and, and um, curriculum development. And I, and yeah, I want to be seen for that. Mm. Oh, I love that. Yeah. Beautiful. Um, what do you think most people learn from you? 
I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's a great question. What do I think most people learn from me? Ooh. I can give you a different question that's like potentially equally as difficult to answer, <laughs> but maybe it'll be easier for you. If in the same vein? A little bit. The, the other question, um, the, the sub for that one is who in your life considers you a role model and why? Oh, wow. I, I notice I feel uncomfortable with both of these questions. Ooh, that makes me feel very excited. <laughs> <laughs> so I think it's because it's something that I'm stepping into in my life. Like, you know, I'm in my, my early forties and I'm a teacher and a writer and it literally took me two decades to get there and own that because mm -hmm. I spent most of my life as um, like, I'm a really good follower. You know, I'm a really good um, person that helped other people on their mission mm -hmm. for a long time. Like, you know, I had a video company and the tagline for my video company was, you know, amplify your online voice or, you know, and so I went around filming people and helping them educate you know, creating courses for them. And, mm. um, you know, I spent most of my life as a student of life and of philosophy and psychology and, and all of these different things and absorbing knowledge. Um, and so really it's only in the last uh, three to five years that I've owned this archetype of the teacher that I have. Um, and it's, it's, I don't, and, I, and I'm deathly afraid of being seen as arrogant. So I, it's, it's, it's still not uh, something that's comfortable for me to own. Oh, I love that. And that, that's so beautiful that like without necessarily even like answering the question, there's still so much self-exploration that happened there. That was great. Mm -hmm. Okay. And last question, and I'm very excited to hear your answer on this. What is one of your favorite questions to ask other people to help you to get to know them? Um, I ask people what's alive in their heart. Hmm. I'm curious, do most people give you a, um, how, how do most people respond to that in general? Well, there's a lot of variations of this question, like what's alive for you. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, I'll, I'll much more readily ask someone, how do you feel instead of how are you? Yeah. And it, and it's like pointing them towards the feeling function. Mm -hmm. We, we have, different what's called cognitive functions um and one of the and it's really a better word is uh we have different functions of our nervous system and one of the functions of our nervous system is to feel mm -hmm. to sense our own emotions and and i believe that the ability to articulate what's happening for us um, in the moment emotionally is just something that's really good for everyone to exercise uh, myself included and um, so when I ask someone what's alive in their heart, I'm pointing them towards the feeling function and I'm also inviting them into to the present moment. Um, mm. aliveness and dynamism only happens when we're here and now. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Oh, oh my gosh, Jason, I could talk to you all day about just like the art of connection. This is so beautiful and I'm so grateful to have been connected with you and to be in this same world with you and that you've taken some time out of your day to share all of this with us. Yeah. Thank you, Kyla. This is super enlivening and fun for me. And uh, I could talk all day too, <laughs> but thank you for the very rich conversation. Yes. Thank you. 
All right, that was the episode with Jason. I hope you loved it. And I will be back next week with another episode. I love you all so much. Thank you so much for listening.